comes from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. I've been here for seven months now, and I still don't know how to do this thing. That's worse. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, well, welcome again. Uh, I am John Stork. I'm the uh, interim pastor here at Res Pres, and uh, it is good to see you this morning. Uh, even some new faces, welcome. If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, I also want to expend, extend a special welcome to you as well. Um, we are honored that you're with us here this morning. Uh, as we uh, uh, come to this text, uh, just a reminder, we, we've taken a, a little break from uh, our study, we, were, we had been looking at the Beatitudes, uh, the very beginning part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but with Easter and now being an Easter tide, 
the season that the church has set apart for us to contemplate uh, more intentionally the ramifications, the implications, the fact that Jesus has bodily resurrected from the dead. We're going to take some time as well and uh, in a sermon series that we've entitled New Life, Post-Resurrection Conversations with Jesus. And so uh, last week we saw Jesus interact with Mary Magdalene, and this morning we will see this interaction with uh, two of uh, apparently disciples, not part of the 12, the original 12 disciples, but certainly those uh, individuals that would have been part of Jesus's wider ministry of disciples. So that is uh, before us, but before we jump in, will you pray with me just one more time and ask for God's presence with us? Heavenly Father, we do ask that uh, you would be with us now, however we find ourselves entering this place, um, whether we come with great enthusiasm and joy in our hearts or whether uh, we are in a season of difficulty and sadness, perhaps even depression, um, whether we come in here with uh, very solid uh, convinced faith at this particular season in our life, or whether we come in with doubts, uh, whether we come in and even question, uh, could these things genuinely be true and have impact on my life? However we find ourselves, would you meet us now through these words? Jesus, show us, demonstrate to us by your Holy Spirit that you truly are the eternal word of God and that you are speaking to us. You continue to speak to us through this, your word, this written word, we pray now, send your spirit, Jesus, for your sake. Amen. Well, uh, many, many years ago, uh, I don't, Jen and I had not been married for very long. Uh, I had a, a very difficult time at a, with a particular job and a, and a particular boss, and uh, it, it had gotten really, really uh, bad. Let's just put it that way. I'll just use that word. And uh, I left uh, the office, and I, I'm, I, as I'm walking out of the office, I pull out my phone, and I have intention of calling somebody that I know will listen, uh, a, a friend, uh, and, I, and, I, and I pull up my contacts, and I, I, I start typing in the letters J-O-H. I'm, I'm trying to look up. There it is. John Thomas, his name pops up. I hit dial, rings. I put the phone up to my head. And for 10 minutes, I went off on my boss and the difficulty and the, the complexity of uh, all that was going on in my work at the time. I was just exasperated. And when I finally, after about 10 minutes, paused and took a breath and the voice started to respond, it dawned on me, this isn't the John Thomas I intended to call. I actually had two John Thomases in my contact list, and this was not the one I wanted to be talking to at that particular moment. Even so, that John Thomas was very gracious <laughs> and kind and gentle and even offered to pray for me if he could. <laughs> in our passage this morning, we, are, we come across a situation where there's a conversation happening and one of the parties doesn't realize who they're talking to. There's mystery here. They're, they're in the dark of who they're having a conversation with. Not due to their mistake, but simply that's what has happened here. 
This is, again, the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection. And Luke tells us that this man named Cleopas and his companion, perhaps his wife, we don't know, left Jerusalem. Most likely they had been there for the week of Passover. And they had been traveling now to Emmaus, perhaps their hometown that they had left for the last week. And something while they were away, while they were in Jerusalem, happened, many things happened, that were not at all in their plans. They had just witnessed the unjust arrest and trial and then brutal crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And now they're making their trek back home. And Luke says that they're discussing these events that they had just witnessed. But Luke actually says more than that. In verse 14, he says, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And then he repeats himself. And while they were talking and discussing together. That second verb, discussing together, is more than simply a coffee conversation. Elsewhere, it's used to speak of disputes and contentions and disagreements. What's happening here? (laughs) They're trying to make sense of what they have just witnessed and experienced. And they were doing what people often do after they experience something that completely throws them off guard. I can think of a personal example. When uh, my firstborn was much younger, just a toddler, we were in Walmart. Somehow he gets lost from Jen and I. And the moment that Jen and I realize that our son is lost and we no longer have him in our care, we turned on each other. <laughs> Instead of putting our minds together and focusing, all right, we've got to figure out where do, we, where do we leave him? Let's retrace our steps. We turned on each other and start arguing with each other. Often when we experience traumatic events in our lives, in the immediate moments afterwards, there can be such a mix of anger and confusion and uncertainty that we find ourselves clashing and contending with those close to us with whom we love rather than with the traumatic event itself. And I think that's what's happening here. But because of the extensive relational religious, political, and social ramifications and spiritual ramifications of the death of the one that these companions called rabbi and Lord, the one who Cleopas will reveal in a moment that many look to as a prophet, even a political redeemer. This is even more of a traumatic experience in many ways than temporarily losing your toddler in a Walmart, as traumatic as that is. And while they're on their way to Emmaus, Jesus somehow catches up to them and joins in the conversation. And unlike us, (laughs) is unafraid to enter into voluntarily this conflict, this dispute. (laughs) And he does so by first simply asking a question. 
question. What are you talking about? What are you guys talking about? (laughs) And Jesus there in that moment shows us that the God of the Bible is a curious question-asking God. He relates to his image bearers the way that Jesus does here, the way that his father has from the very beginning. But he's not asking questions out of ignorance. (laughs) Jesus is rather trying to draw these men. Jesus tries to draw us out of our emotional and spiritual hiding place and into vulnerable and redemptive conversation with him. And this is how we see it from the very beginning. Remember back in the garden when Adam and Eve fall and they go into hiding. The creator comes and first asks questions. Where are you? Where are you? Fast forward in the biblical narrative. And we see that Jesus following in his father's footsteps over 300 times in the gospels asks questions. Now, pause for a second. As a side note, <laughs> by the way, I would, I would urge us as followers of Jesus, as those that call ourselves Christians, that we could learn a lot from that approach. That posture, that demeanor of interacting with others who may have doubts, who may be blind, who may not see things the way we do. Before we start making assumptions, Questions. Now, it's certainly not the only thing we do as followers of Jesus. We, we confess. We make declarative statements. We do it each week with the confession of faith. <laughs> There's a definitive aspect to our faith that we must declare, and we do so. But it behooves us as his followers, especially in such a post-Christian cultural context as Urban and University Madison, to start with questions. Lots of questions, (laughs) genuine questions, curious questions. Because even though God does so, not from a lack of knowledge, and he does so knowing what's in our hearts, we don't. (laughs) We don't really know what's in the heart. And so questions. And so next we see Jesus Simply (laughs) asking a question. What are you guys talking about? And notice their response. Luke says, in response to Jesus' question, they stood still looking sad. They had been walking. (laughs) They're traveling. They have a destination ahead of them. And furthermore, they had been in what likely would have appeared from the outside as a pretty heated argument as they're wrestling with each other, trying to wrap their minds about around what had just happened. And Jesus' question, sorry for using the word literally, but literally stops them in their tracks. They stood still looking sad. Because underneath all of the disputing and the confusion anger, underneath all of it, there was a sadness and a sorrow 
And Jesus' question draws them into a place of vulnerability, which is often the place he exerts and ministers his healing and redeeming care to you and I. And the one named Cleopas, after he gathers himself back together, wipes his tears, (laughs) is now incredulous and turns to Jesus and says, full of sarcasm, (laughs) are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last few days? (laughs) Where have you been? We know where he's been. But in response to Cleopas's sarcastic question, Jesus asked one more question himself. What things? <laughs> what things? Tell me about it. Now we will get to it. Jesus is inviting them to verbally acknowledge, to talk about, What has caused such distress and anguish and sadness? He is beautifully, healingly drawing them out. And he will not simply let them bury their emotions and their concerns and their fears and their sorrows and press them deep down and just go about life. What things? And so Cleopas begins to explain Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. These men had obvious, tremendous uh, respect for Jesus. Jesus made a profound impact on them and their lives. Simply, first of all, to call him a prophet would have been highly significant. God's people had not heard from a prophet in 400 years. But Jesus had made an impression. But then he adds, but we had hoped. We had hoped. And that's the crux right there and the basis of their sadness and their sorrow and their frustration and their confusion. We had hoped. Dashed hopes. Arguably the most difficult experience a human can experience. Dashed hopes. And the greater the hopes, I would make the case, the greater the weight of the pain and the sorrow when they get dashed. All of us at some point have expectations of how things should go in life. And then when we meet the realization that things will not go that way, like these two, were someone to ask us, why are you sad? (laughs) If we ever let on that we were, in fact, sad, and if we were truly and genuinely honest with ourselves and with others, we would say, 
It's because we had hoped. We had hoped. For Cleopas, his specific hopes were that Jesus would become that strong political military leader and overthrow the Roman superpower that was keeping his people exiles in their own land. Not a small matter. We had hoped. And with those hopes being dashed, they had left Jerusalem behind and were now embarking on their way to Emmaus, going back to life as it was before because our hopes were dashed. It didn't turn out the way we had hoped. I love how Frederick Beekner puts it. He says, Emmaus can be a trip to the movies just for the sake of seeing a movie or a cocktail party just for the sake of cocktails. Emmaus may be buying a new suit or a new car or smoking more cigarettes than you really want or reading a second-rate novel or even writing one. Emmaus may even be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world seems to hold nothing sacred. That even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die. And even the noblest ideas that people have have had ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish people for selfish ends. Emmaus is where these two went. Emmaus is where, Emmaus is where we go to try to forget about Jesus and the seemingly great failure of his life. And this is the place that Jesus chooses to meet them. It's where Jesus always comes looking for us <laughs> on our road to our Emmaus. Often we aren't even aware of it like these men, but Jesus is actually coming after us out of his compassion, out of his care in the midst of our dashed hopes on the way to our Emmaus. <laughs> but in his care, his plan is to reorient our perspective. And that can be very jolting and even disconcerting for us. Because often it is we who have wrongly misdirected our hopes. And while although Jesus, out of his great mercy and compassion and love, always is willing to meet us exactly where we are, even though he accepts us and welcomes us, right where we are in all of our complexities, all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of our dashed hopes. He never intends to leave us there. And therefore his response. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe 
That's the basis for their particular dashed hopes, according to Jesus. Now, no doubt, often in this life, we experience dashed hopes. We experience sorrow, not because of anything we've done. No doubt. But simply as a consequence of living in a fallen, broken world. It is true. The Bible says so. That much of the sadness that we experience is simply due to living in a world where things are just not the way they are supposed to be right now. But there are also times, like these men, that our hopes are dashed and we experience sorrow and confusion and even anger. (laughs) Because the orientation of our own personal hope and perspective is off to begin with. And Jesus would challenge us as he does these two companions this morning with these words, not as a way to shame us. Jesus never comes to shame us. But as a further way to bid us to come to a place of further healing, of further faith, of more restoration, greater redemption. To us, he might say, oh foolish ones, and slow to believe. Where might you and I right now, this morning, be foolish in allowing our false perspective and hope actually lead us into more sorrow than is actually necessary? Where are you and I this morning, right now, possibly, slow to believe? Perhaps you're here this morning, And you're slow to believe that Jesus could actually love you this much. That he could actually know your entire story. All of the dark secrets known to few others, if any. And that he has actually offered and forgiven you and embraced you. Even there. Perhaps you are here this morning and slow to believe that. Jesus could actually be worthy of your full allegiance and faith. Perhaps there's a particular sin and proclivity that you just don't think you could live without. And Jesus might be saying as a challenge and yet compassionately this morning, oh, foolish one, slow to believe. I am enough. I am enough. I can solely give you the true rest and fulfillment that your heart so greatly desires. Or perhaps you're here this morning slow to believe simply because circumstances or life has just not progressed the way you had hoped. And perhaps the truth be told, you're here this morning and there is an anger. (laughs) There is a bitterness. And perhaps Jesus is here would want to draw you out of that to get to the true sorrow, the dashed hopes underneath so that he might there redeem and reorient your greatest hope and perspective on life. And so Jesus, in his response, would remind all of us as he offers these two companions (laughs) what had to have been the greatest Bible study of all time. The most profound Christological 
survey of the Bible that has ever taken place. He asserts that the entire biblical narrative, <laughs> and furthermore, than just a great Bible study, he asserts that the entire biblical narrative, every aspect of it, was pointing to him. <laughs> the whole purpose of God's mission throughout all redemptive history to overturn the sin, the rebellion, the evil, the brokenness that humanity had introduced to the creator's good and beautiful world is now fulfilled, being recreated and being accomplished through himself and his life and death and resurrection. As Sarah Lloyd-Jones says in her Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. Every one of them. This is all about me, says Jesus. <laughs> the law, the prophets, all of it. Me. Now think about that claim. <laughs> if that is not true, could there be a more conceited, arrogant, <laughs> narcissistic statement any human being could ever make. It's all about me. But if it's true, it changes everything. And these men in that moment, as they hear Jesus offer this, beg him to stay with them. And so they go in this house. They sit down over the dinner table. Now, remember, he's been invited, Jesus has been invited to be their guest. But Jesus does something that's normally reserved for the host, not the guest. He takes bread, and he breaks it, and he blesses it. And Luke tells us at that moment, their eyes were opened. And they finally recognized who it was. Jesus had shown up on the scene, physically in their presence. Luke said earlier that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He interacts with them for an extended period of time, making a case for why all of the scriptures pointed to Jesus himself and his life and death and resurrection. They still didn't recognize him. It wasn't until they sat down over a meal and Jesus took the bread and broke it and blessed it that they finally recognized who it was. And then it hits them. <laughs> Would not our hearts burn within us <laughs> while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? There was something profoundly familiar about this resurrected Jesus that even though he was talking with them for so long, they didn't fully perceive and recognize him but now after he breaks the bread in their presence and blesses it, something within them tells us, shoot, <laughs> we should have known. We knew, but we didn't know. And that tells us there must be some continuity and discontinuity between now, this life, and the new heavens and the new earth. One of my favorite conversations with my boys growing up, it got asked many times, Dad, will we recognize you? <laughs> in the new world, the new heavens, the new earth. There will be continuity. There will be discontinuity. There will be a glorified. There will be something we have not experienced before with each other. But at the same time, it will be, yes, I know who that, yes, I know who you are. 
We saw that with Mary last week, Mary Magdalene. She didn't, she thought Jesus was the gardener until he called her name. And even Mary has a similar response. I knew, I should have known. Of course it's you. But I close with this. It also, not only does this tell us that there is some kind of continuity and discontinuity with the new heavens and new earth that we don't fully understand, but it also tells us this for us now, which is when you and I are on our road to Emmaus, it often might feel as if Jesus is not there. It is easy in those moments to cry out, God, where are you? Where are you? And it's just possible. It's not just possible, clearly. It's a matter of whether we will trust and believe that it is on our road to Emmaus that absolutely, whether we recognize him and his presence there or not, he is absolutely there tracking us down. And through his means and through his ways, interacts with us in a way to draw us out, to reorient our perspective and our ultimate hope that it might fully and wholly rest on him and him alone. That's the gospel. That Jesus ultimately is your hope. That he has done something about the reason that your hopes remain dashed. And he invites you to himself. He comes looking for you. He comes looking for me to draw us out. To bring him to himself. Because that's the type of Savior and Lord and King and Shepherd that he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we admit there are seasons in our lives. Perhaps there are some right now going through a season. Where we might not use these particular words, <coughs> but were we in a conversation with someone? And we were asked, how are things going? <laughs> our response, the crux of our response might be something like, I had hoped. <laughs> Jesus, would you, in your tender mercy, in your compassion, would you gently bid us, remind us, would you even open our eyes, open up our hearts to be able to believe that you are there, that you are bidding us, even in those difficult times and circumstances, to reorient our hope, to fully latch that hope onto you and your work that you have done on our behalf and the hope for our future that you give us because you have risen from the dead. Would you give us that courage and even that faith to be able to do that this morning. We pray this for your sake, Jesus. Amen.